Hello and welcome back to Fellowship of the Research Podcast. My name is Sasha Neuer. And I am Megan Ward and we are so excited to have you back for yet another episode of the podcast. Is there anything exciting happening over the next week coming up for you? Yeah, so in the next couple weeks coming up, I'm having my last committee meeting before I defend my master's. I'm going to present all the results and all the analysis that I've run so far and hopefully get my committee's opinions on what I've been doing so far. That is so exciting. What kind of stuff do you have to prep for? a final committee meeting because I will say out of five years of being here I've never had my final committee meeting. (laughs) Well that's a great question because I also technically have never had a final committee meeting. I am assuming I have to put together the analysis that I've run, the results I've gotten, why I chose specific analysis, as well as at the beginning provide a little bit of background on the project that I've been working on and I think I'll also talk a little bit about the goals I have moving forward so a defense date where I want to publish the research I've been working on as well because I'm starting a PhD soon oh yeah I got accepted for my PhD which is so exciting I just realized that probably should have been the thing that has happened to me this week yes definitely buried the lead on that (laughs) yes okay so I got my PhD acceptance so now in my committee meeting I'm going to talk about the data that I'm going to prepare for a PhD as well that is so exciting Megan I'm sure there will be an upcoming episode on all the work you have planned for your PhD but very briefly what's going to be different in your PhD from your master's? So for my master's, I have focused on this one wetland down at Point Pelee National Park. They are invaded by invasive Phragmites. So in an effort to remove Phragmites, the park has come in and cut it all down. So I went in and studied how that affects things like vegetation, insects, birds, frogs, a whole kind of biodiversity scale for the wetland. For my PhD, I'm going to continue looking at this along a longer time scale. So not just one or two years, but up to five or seven years after restoration. I'm also going to be adding on another wetland. So I'm going to be studying Second Marsh in Oshawa, which is another Great Lake coastal wetland, this time in Lake Ontario instead of Lake Erie, which Point Pelee is on. And I'll be able to compare across Great Lake coastal wetlands as well as within wetlands what happens when you remove invasive Phragmites. That is so exciting. Well, congratulations. Thank you. And for those listeners that are maybe early on in their undergrad, I know Megan has already hired field techs for this summer. But given that she'll be here for many more summers to come, I would keep your ears open for possible employment opportunities with Megan Ward in possible summers working in her wetlands. For sure, if you really want to get experience working with the Ministry of Natural Resources, both of my co-supervisors for my PhD are research scientists. So we'll be hiring through the Ministry for Summer Students and we hire every year. So if you're interested, you, you can get in contact with me through our fellowship Gmail account and then I can reply to you on my personal email and we can chat about work opportunities opportunities in the future. Well, again, congratulations, Megan. And we're going to do a little 180 here and get back into what happens in a master's project. We'll be having Lillian in, so maybe she can fill us in a little bit on what happens during a final committee meeting. And we hope you guys enjoy. Okay, Lillian, do you want to take a moment and introduce yourself? My name is Lillian. I sometimes go by Lily, so you're welcome to call me that. I recently graduated from the MA Sustainability Studies program here at Trent. I guess I came to Trent after taking a few years off of school, and before that, I did my undergrad in biology at Mount Allison University. What made you want to switch from doing a BSc to an MA? It took a lot of just figuring out what I was interested in, really. I think taking some time off after my undergrad was really helpful for that. I worked in outdoor education for a while, and I think when I was like looking 
interviewing for master's programs, I was very stuck on doing an MSc because I feel like, you know, that's the kind of natural route. And yeah, I just felt like I should be doing that. So I was really looking for those programs. And then I was like, you know what? I don't even know that I want to do this. So I started looking at MA programs and they were a lot more interesting to me. My undergrad was in geography and human geography. So that kind of sparked an interest in me. But I think as we'll talk about, I kind of use both skills in qualitative research to do this sort of like interdisciplinary approach. So I guess that's what caused me to switch. Okay, well, before we get into all the details, because I want to hear everything about this, Mm -hmm. have you ever been on a podcast before? No, never. And I love podcasts, so I'm excited about this. Okay, awesome. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a great idea, too. I did my master's during COVID, so it was very, like, isolating, and I didn't really talk about my research a lot. It was mostly just, like, writing it and emailing it to people and stuff like that. So I'm excited to chat about it. So we're making up for lost time today. Exactly. I love that. Well, we're so excited to have you on and give you that opportunity. So you have actually finished your MA and you're working now, but during grad school, when you weren't focusing on grad school, what else were you doing? Did you have any hobbies? I started grad school in September, 2020. So it was a lot of like sitting at home. Rough time to start grad school. Yes. It was a questionable decision. It did make for an interesting experience because in my second year I lived in Wales so because everything ended up being remote and I didn't have any like lab or field work really I've just like lived in a different country I'm going on an adventure but as far as hobbies lots of walking and spending time outside I think that was a really great part of COVID and also just like working remotely I could just kind of head out for an afternoon or an hour really connecting to the environment around me what brought you all the way to Wales to my partner was doing his teaching degree in Wales. We left in August of 2021 and didn't come back until August of 2022. So we were there for a whole year. I often complained about the whole grad school experience during COVID, but this was like a really great thing that came out of it because I was able to travel and live in a different place. And I TA'd online from the UK because why not? I feel like we do always talk about like the bummers of COVID, but Mm -hmm. if there's ever an opportunity that you can just go live in Wales while you're still doing your master's, like that is the opportunity. So do you want to give us a little bit more information about any of your past research history? As I mentioned, I did my undergraduate degree in biology. I went into my undergrad, I was like, I'm going to be a scientist. And so I volunteered in a lab in my second year. It was a fish physiology lab. And we worked with mangrove rivulus, which is like this tiny little like pinky sized fish. And it's kind of interesting. It's a hermaphroditic fish. It can self-fertilize. Wow. And it adapts to different environments really well. So different salinity and different dissolved oxygen. It's a really fascinating little fish that I think a lot of people study because it's kind of like a rock star fish. Yeah. Yeah. I understand that. And it's like perfect lab size. Just like keep a bunch of them. Yes. But my job was animal care. So it was changing. (laughs) It was changing their tanks. Their tanks being like little cups and there were hundreds of fish. So it was just a lot of like pouring the fish into this little fish net and then changing the water and then putting the fish back and then getting your next fish. Pouring the fish, changing the water, putting the fish back, getting your next fish. Pouring the fish, changing the water, putting the fish back, getting your next fish. So yeah, it was a little bit tedious and boring, but I also helped grad students with their experiments sometimes, which was cool. And that was my tenure as a scientist. (laughs) (laughs) And that's where you were like, no more. (laughs) They were doing 
really great work, but I was just like, I don't know that this is for me. So like I said, my minor was in geography. When I was entering my fourth year, I did want to do some sort of research. So I ended up doing this interdisciplinary project between biology and geography that was on tick and Lyme disease education. So I worked with this like well-known tick researcher at Mount Allison, Dr. Vet Lloyd, and place-based and experiential education professor, Dr. Michael Fox. We designed a tick education program for high school students. And it was all about getting kids outside, collecting tick samples from the field and bringing that back to their classrooms and talking about how climate change, animals, and human health intersect. Amazing. Yeah, it was really, really cool. So I worked like directly with students and we evaluated the program looking at A, like did they learn anything about ticks and Lyme disease, which they did, and B, were they more interested in science after the program? Because I think often in high school, you're kind of just learning from a PowerPoint or something like that and Mm -hmm. you're not really getting hands-on. And so this was just a way for them to see that science could be like outside and it can be cool. Yeah, that was a really great project. And the resource that I made is still being used, which is really cool and like a nice tangible outcome. So right on. That must feel really good. Like I've got like this thing that people are using. Yeah. And and ticks are pretty scary. So it's good to like get education out there. Mm -hmm. How did the kids feel about like collecting ticks outside? Were they into it or were they kind of grossed out some of them I think the kids that maybe spent more time like outside in general were like okay with it but some were not but you know ticks are becoming just like more prevalent everywhere and I think the important thing is like always just doing tick checks a fun tidbit which is actually like it makes me feel a lot better is that ticks typically need to be on you and like biting you for 48 hours to transmit Lyme disease so if you're doing tick checks regularly the chance of you actually like contracting Lyme is pretty low the very first time I went away for field work my field work is down at Point Pelee National Park so about six hours from here Mm -hmm. I got this like crazy freaked out text from my at the time boyfriend now fiance and he's like there's something on the dog what's going on and I was like I don't know I barely have cell reception and so he tried to send me a photo and it was a picture on the dog's like forehead right in the middle of his forehead and I was like you're gonna have to call my parents because I can't get there and so he eventually like got it off but he had to take it off like in pieces and I think that was like our first real experience with ticks and like we haven't had them on us but our dogs get them quite a lot yeah I think I think like when I was teaching people about ticks, I was like, oh, don't panic. It's fine. Like if you get a tick on you. And then a year later, I got a tick on me for the first time and I was so freaked out by it. So I've stopped telling people not to freak out because I feel like that's just a natural human reaction. Yeah. Yeah. Before we jump into the nitty gritty of your research, what's been the best part of your grad school experience overall? This is going to sound like so cliche, but honestly, the learning, I've learned so much. I love learning. And because I came from the science background, I've just learned so much in the social sciences, so many theories and people that are just so fascinating and great. So I would say just what I've learned and I feel feel more whole from the whole experience. How do you pick up the threads of an old life? How do you go on? But in your heart, you begin to understand there is no going back. I guess I'll kind of give the story of the research. So I worked with Kortha Land Trust, which is a local conservation organization. And land trusts do conservation in very specific ways by typically like buying land or using conservation easements. And Kortha Land Trust is a great organization that wants to find different ways forward 
They want to leave the status quo of what conservation is and find better ways to do it, essentially. So what they had proposed through a grant is what is called community-based conservation. And for them, this meant like opening up trails, finding access opportunities for the community, working with landowners, working with community partners to figure out ways to get the community involved. And so Cortha Land Trust, while they do have some staff, they have a ton of volunteers. So the staff were sort of wondering how the volunteers felt about this change because community-based conservation is sort of leaving the status quo of conservation in Canada or as we understand it in like Western cultures. So they were curious about how their volunteers felt about these changes and what that would mean for the organization going forward. kick off our research segment what program were you in what year did you graduate in and who was your supervisor yes so I was in the sustainability studies program which is a very great program that has a lot of different students with different backgrounds in it super interdisciplinary which I just loved I defended my thesis successfully in September of 2022 so not too long ago and my supervisor was Dr. Stephanie Rutherford, who I just love. She's the most wonderful person and was such a great supervisor. Her research, it's in political ecology, environmental humanities, environmental histories, and cultural geography. And she does some really interesting work on wolves and coyotes and how they represent Canada. She has just taught me so much and I attribute a lot of what I've learned in grad school to her. So highly recommend to anyone that is interested in those topics. Can you review for us the difference between conservation and community-based conservation? You touched on it a little bit, but just tell us sort of how they differ and what they both are. Conservation, and I think it's important that we specify that it's Western conservation because there's all different conservation practices around the world. Western conservation is typically a historically use approaches like the fortress or fence and fine where it's basically like lock up a parcel of land you said this fortress would never fall while your men defend it we'll do our conservation stuff on it but you know people shouldn't be on it and like nothing other than trees and animals should be on it basically just leaving it be and it sort of understands uh, humans as unproductive with ecological goals and community-based conservation is an approach that was proposed as a way to attend to calls of like sustainable development. And it's where the environment and humans can flourish together. So it's defined as doing conservation by, for, and with community, and is characterized by ceding some decision-making power to the community. So instead of this sort of top-down approach to conservation, it follows more of a bottom-up approach. Many of the principles of community-based conservation come from non-Western conservation practices and Indigenous conservation practices and thinking about how humans are to interact with the land. And I think it's also important to mention that it has recorded benefits for the environment and for humans. So it seems like this really great approach going forward. That sounds much more appealing to me as someone who's very much into biology and the natural world. Mm -hmm. Like I'd way rather live in a community that has led with conservation first and it's like incorporating the natural world as opposed to like the fortress method that you're talking about but you're saying we're actually shifting towards this more fortress western conservation method as
as opposed to the community-based method? I think people typically go by what they are trained in, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, universities up till now really have trained in like this protection mindset. And so while I think that sort of an acceptance of community-based conservation is coming, I think that it's slow because it makes sense, right? Like including people into conservation, we are not separate from our environment. We are fully ingrained. And so the idea of like conservation is over here and I'm here. And so I am separate from that does lead to like negative outcomes because you think, oh, I can just do whatever I'm doing over here and that doesn't affect it over there. But actually understanding everything as a full system, I think is really important in the way we go forward. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's interesting that you said that we're moving towards community-based conservation, but it takes a while. And I would imagine in institutions or cities kind of on a larger scale where there's a pretty big disjunct between the larger population and then the governing bodies, it will take longer in those kind of situations because it kind of sounds like the goal of this community-based conservation is to have continuous flow of information and communication between those two groups so that it's not a top-down approach so that Mm -hmm. the larger community gets to make decisions along with this kind of governing board. But when there is such a break between those two groups, it seems like there has to be quite a lot of building done before we can even have that communication come forward. Absolutely. On that note, what role do volunteers specifically play in your system? In the case of this study we were specifically looking at volunteers because of their role in the organization so for example the Corth Land Trust is governed by a board made up of volunteers right and ultimately boards have a lot of decision-making power so if the staff members are to be like okay like let's change our practices and the board isn't on board then there could be like major, I feel like saying conflict is too extreme, but when people aren't seeing eye to eye, it can lead to disagreements. It's so difficult with volunteers specifically because people are coming in and giving their time. And I think they expect their time to be treated definitely a certain way and their opinion to be treated a certain way, especially if they're an older member of the community. So I'm sure that's all really playing complicated roles in the system as well. Yes, absolutely. And the, the volunteers are so committed and they're so committed to the vision or the maybe the previous vision of the organization from when they got involved so it's hard I think for them to see like those changes coming when maybe they don't necessarily agree with it and I guess addition to the sort of board roles there's also what I characterize as organization shaping roles that some of them play so for example in communications to the public maybe if they were not in agreement with community-based conservation they could frame the words in Mm. specific ways or there's just things like grant writing right So it's just really important to understand their perspectives to just find a way forward that it feels good for everyone. And it's all about like what you said at the beginning, people are trained in specific ways and then it's difficult to branch off of those ways, especially when you've been actively working through your training for multiple years, sometimes Mm -hmm. even a couple decades. So why is it important to understand the background of the volunteers and the volunteers understanding of community and conservation? That's a great question, honestly. Thank you, I made it up. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'll present a question back to you. So in the social sciences, we have to write positionality statements. Do you have to do that in the sciences? Not as often, though I've seen more people doing it recently in acknowledgement sections Mm. in manuscripts when they're published, Mm. but I haven't really seen it in just general presentations, like in seminars or or things like that. I don't know if I know what that is off the top of my head. Like I think it's when it's like what your position is in society and that how that may affect your biases that are implicit in your work. We call it the conflict of interest Mm. section, but it's not very 
common and mm-hmm. it's more for like animals that are of like particular interest to people like caribou I know it's very common to write a conflict of interest that kind of stuff mm-hmm. but like as a flying squirrel researcher I don't think I've ever oh I did have to write one one time but I mm-hmm. had no conflict of interest right it's, like, I just love the know, squirrels I just love them <laughs> yeah it's interesting though to me that it would be called a conflict of interest because I don't think that biases are necessarily bad right I think that they're just important to mm-hmm. acknowledge so I guess coming back to the question, we all have biases, including in science. And so I think it's really important to understand people's background, to understand where those perspectives come from. For example, when you're trying to figure out how the volunteers feel about community-based conservation, what was their job? What were they trained in? How old are they? What is their occupation now? Where are they coming from? Like all these questions are so important to understand when you're thinking about what their perspectives are and what that means. So, you know, in social sciences, we often look for relationships between factors. So, I mean, you could think about the background as sort of the independent variable that affects the dependent variable of their perspectives. So going back to the bigger question here, can you tell us a bit more about the Kawartha Land Trust and what their goals were after winning the Ontario Trillium Foundation grant? And maybe a bit about what that grant is. Kawartha Land Trust is such a great organization. They were so lovely to work with. And I think that's the power of working with community organizations is that they're just so keen to have someone on board working with them. The staff there are just so innovative and really just ahead of the curb on conservation, so that was really great. Kawartha Land Trust maybe has nine or ten staff members, which is pretty significant for a land trust. They maybe have like 50 to 60 volunteers involved in some way. It depends how you characterize volunteers because sometimes they come in for one event and then they kind of go do their own thing. And the volunteers, again, are just so wonderful and so committed to conservation, and they spoke so highly about Kawartha Land Trust. So I think that there's a really great thing that they have going. And so Kawartha Land Trust owns a ton of land through the Kawarthas, just outright owns, but also they work with landowners on conservation easements, which is a legally binding agreement in perpetuity that the landowner has to commit to certain things with the organization and this easement stays on the property forever. So even if the property is sold, it still stays on the property. Could you give us an example of what an easement might be? Any parcel of land that is owned, I think it has to be a certain size, can be under a conservation easement. So it could be someone's farm, or it could be a huge swath of land owned by a company. Every easement looks different, and it's up to a negotiation between the conservation organization and the landowner. So maybe they say, okay, you can't build any more buildings on this property. Or maybe they say you need to do some stewardship activities. Or maybe they just say that like you can't build like another road through it or something like that. So it's hard to characterize because they are all different and it is up to a negotiation between the landowner and the organization. Are easements offered by the landowner or are they imposed by the land trust? They're offered by the landowner. It's voluntary. And there's a lot of research on easements in general because it's an interesting way to get 
get more people on board with conservation. There are some debates about property value, if it increases or decreases. There isn't a full agreement, I don't think, in the literature on that. And also, you know, some people just wouldn't want to buy a property that's under easement because maybe they aren't fully on board with conservation or maybe they are just like worried about the restrictive nature that it can be. So yes, it is up to the landowner. And I will say that there are benefits to the landowner that have nothing to do with conservation, but it actually has to do with tax rebates. So it is incentivized. So once Corth Land Trust won the Ontario Trillium Foundation grant, Mm -hmm. what was their goal with winning that grant? Why did they apply for it? And how did they use that funding? They applied for it because they're just looking for different ways to do conservation. I don't think that it's a secret that conservation in Canada and North America hasn't been that effective so far. You know, we're still losing species. There is still large pieces of land that are in development. We are still in this environmental crisis. And so Corth Land Trust just wanted to find ways to go forward in a way that's sustainable, respective, inclusive, all these things. And so they were looking in the literature and they were looking to other organizations and they saw this community-based conservation thing. This practice they thought could really work with their organization because Peterborough area is very supportive of the green space and the conservation lands. So they really thought that the community could get on board, especially because we have so much so much land around us that is not developed. So they were just wondering how they could get community on board. So with the grant, they wanted to open up more trails. They wanted to do more events that would bring community in. They wanted to work with other organizations. I know they often work with Wild Rock to put on events to get people who might not typically be recreating out onto the land. So maybe people who have only ever really lived in cities or maybe people that are new to Canada. They wanted to just get more people on board because conservation is going to be most successful when there are just more people aware and more people supportive of it. So that was behind the philosophy of getting this Ontario Trillium grant. Yeah, I think they just really wanted to find a better way going forward. And so your master's really looked at how the Cortha Land Trust used the Ontario Trillium Foundation grant to employ more community-based conservation efforts. And then you studied the kind of mindset and understanding of the volunteers. So after everything we've talked about today, what were the key findings from your project? I will go through my three objectives from my work and tell you what I found. So the first objective was to understand who volunteers with Corth Land Trust and why. I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. And so I found that the volunteers in my sample were overwhelmingly retired and older adults in their 60s, 70s, 80s even. They were overwhelmingly from the resource and management sector. So here in Peterborough, we have the MNR, but we also have Trent and we have Fleming and these like great institutions that do resource and management and environmental things. So a lot of them were from that sector. They were very homogenous. So they were all kind of the same type of person. The second objective was understanding how they felt about community-based conservation and also just their general perspective on conservation. So what do they feel like the goals, methods, and outcomes should be? All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. 
And so I found that the volunteers really viewed conservation through this Western science. So they talked about naturalness and wholeness, and they used a lot of technical terms, which made sense because a lot of them like had their masters in forestry or wildlife or biology, and, and they work for places like the MNR. So they viewed conservation through this very specific Western science lens, and they're generally unsupportive of community-based conservation. And I want to emphasize that like their views are not wrong at all. Viewing conservation through a scientific lens is really important, but I think that there's also some really important perspectives out there that need to be included in. Finally, I wanted to look at if they had a different perspective than what the organization and the staff thought was a way forward, what kind of impact would that have on the organization? So as I said, they're on the board, they have these organization shaping jobs. What does that mean? Well, because of this governance structure of advisory committees and the board and all these things, there was potential that this misalignment in perspectives could lead to some difficulties in the organizations. And that's not to say for sure, but it's there's potential for that. Okay, so what is a Western science-informed understanding of community-based science? Um, so what is this and mm-hmm. what other views exist? Mm, yeah, so I will say that, I mean, I'm sure you know as scientists, like Western science is not a monolith. It emphasizes these perspectives and changes through time as we learn new things. So there have been a ton of different understandings of conservation and ecology since Canada was settled, I mean, and before, but I was specifically looking at after Canada was colonized. And so I'm not going to go into a ton of it because then we go down this huge rabbit hole of environmental history, which would take a long time. But currently, this Western and science-informed understanding of conservation is through this lens of ecological integrity. Several scholars have dissected the principles of ecological integrity and found that it does ultimately understand humans as inherently damaging to ecosystems. So when you think about ecological integrity, it's typically based on the ideas that ecosystems should be managed in a way that maintains their natural structure, function, and diversity. And ultimately, it wants to get back to a certain set point, which is typically pre-colonization. The critique of it is that it doesn't adequately account for the dynamic and complex nature of ecosystems, and that ecosystems are always moving forward, right? And even though humans have exacerbated that change, ecosystems don't just like stay stagnant. They're always moving forward. Currently, this newer philosophy that is arising, it goes by a couple different terms, but we were calling it ecosystem-based management. So it recognizes the importance of taking this whole holistic, integrated, adaptive approach to managing ecosystems, which includes considering social and economic contexts. It just sees ecosystems as a full system rather than something that is in a protected area. We humans affect these things and our systems affect these things. And so it involves including diverse stakeholder management in decision-making and incorporating new scientific information. And I think that this ecosystem-based management is more aligned with community-based conservation And it is a philosophy that is coming forward as something that scientists are really buying into. But again, these things are slow. And when you think back to the sample of people I was talking to, well, they were all older adults who were trained maybe in the 70s or the 80s when that 
was when the environmental crisis was really gaining traction and ecological integrity was this dominant thinking. I think it's so interesting that perspective that humans are not inherently bad and that humans and an environment can coexist positively and it makes me think a lot about the students that I TA. I TA a lot of like first and second year courses though a couple upper year courses too and we recently had this project where the students had to pick essentially something that was wrong with the environment and explain why and again and again it was just humans can't do this. Humans can't coexist with the rainforest. Humans can't coexist with any species at risk because the only thing we can do is negative. We can only have bad impacts. The age of men is over. The time of the orc has come. But it's so interesting, this perspective that we don't have to completely remove humans from an environment for that environment to exist positively. There just has to be a change in how we think about that. And it's so cool because you talk about like it's a very slow process and it will be, I imagine, because even now when I'm a TAing a second year course and the students are in this mindset, humans can do nothing positively. Mm-hmm. The best thing we could do is get our butts out of there and just leave the environment alone. And honestly, I, I see myself thinking that a lot too. So it's a really good reminder for early career scientists who want to remain in science to think, like we need to change these perspectives because the solution is not going to be removing humans from every endangered environment or protected environment because ultimately that's not realistic. And I think it's also important to emphasize that like when we think about climate change, obviously climate change is being caused by humans, but it's not humans as an individual. It's human-made systems. So it's capitalism, it's colonialism, it's these larger systems and it's not an individual person or even a community, right? So I think that bringing individuals and communities into conservation will be very positive and thinking about how we can sort of bring down these really terrible and environmental destructing systems is also a good way to to go forward. It's a larger fight for sure. So you previously talked about how your group of volunteers is homogenous and so while it might be nice to have everyone on the same page, how can we get everyone off the same page and maybe get some different perspectives in there? It's nice to think about, you know, a meeting where everyone just agrees with everything. That would be lovely, (laughs) right? And I think that that is sort of when you do have a lot of people with the same viewpoints, that often happens. So that's, it's really nice. And you can just go home and, and think that you've done a really great job, which, you know, you have in some ways. But I also don't think that creativity comes from everyone just agreeing on things. Obviously, I think that it's really important to have people involved who have this like strong scientific background. But I also think it's really important to have people involved who don't have a scientific background like think about a third generation farmer whose grandparents told him or her or them about the land and about the plants and about things that they were seeing or think about an indigenous person who has a specific knowledge system that has been carried on through time who knows things that you do not as someone who maybe didn't even grow up in the area So I think that including diverse perspectives is really going to shift things as far as creativity and innovation and finding a way forward. And I also think that bringing people with diverse backgrounds in will help get more people on board, right? So say, you know, you're a hunter and you don't really like conservation areas because typically conservation areas aren't letting you hunt. So what about you send a representative into the board as a board member that brings your perspectives in and maybe you're not getting everything that you quote unquote want, but they are bringing your perspective in, you feel heard. And I think that's important in conservation, getting people on board is is feeling heard and feeling like these very smart people that are involved in conservation aren't just like making these decisions for you and how you interact with the land. So I was 
making recommendations to Cortland Trust in that sort of mind. And I was just saying, you need to think about a way to make your recruitment more inclusive. So obviously, when you think about inclusion, you know, thinking about equity groups is really important, but also just generally people who come from different lifestyles, people who are urban, people who are rural, people who aren't Canadian from birth, just bringing a plethora of perspectives is going to be really important going forward. And so I'm not an HR person. I don't know a lot about recruitment, but there are so many resources out there of getting people on board. And I think it starts with just talking to them and asking them how they would like to be involved and how they want the way forward to be. So what was the overall goal of your MA work? The overall goal was to understand the perspectives of people working in in conservation and to find a way forward in conservation that is sustainable for the environment and for humans, respectful and inclusive. So to kick off our Lord of the Rings segment, who is your favorite character and why? I would say Samwise Ganji is my favorite character and it's because he's sort of the unsung hero. He's so down to earth and lovely and I just really liked him. Hell yeah, that's my favorite character too. <laughs> so after Frodo finishes his major trek through Middle Earth and eventually destroys the ring, he was very excited to relax and rest. So seeing as you finished your giant trek and killed your defense, What are you excited to do now that you're finished grad school? Well, I am excited to look for new opportunities. I started a job doing some research in housing and homelessness, which is pretty unrelated to my master's research, but it's really interesting learning new things. And I think that when you focus on a master's for two years, you're very ingrained in it. And it's nice to be able to kind of broaden my horizons and and learn about different things, applying to more schooling. So... (laughs) Why not? And just continuing learning and having some more time to relax and spend time with my dog and spend time outside and all these things. So it's it's nice to be done, but I do miss parts of it for sure. So destroying the ring was arguably the most difficult part of Sam and Frodo's adventures. What was the most difficult part of your grad school experience? I would say specifically writing my literature review was the hardest part. It was very lengthy and time consuming and a lot of just reading stuff. So that was the very specific hardest part. But more generally, I would say just the isolation of it. Doing it during COVID was really tough. And I only met like two people from my cohort in person the entire time. And you hear about, and I'm sure you both have like great grad school experiences because it sounds like you are always hanging out with your lab and stuff like that, which is nice. But I didn't really get to meet anyone and I didn't really make any friends. And I had colleagues and we worked well together but just lacking that sort of connection with the grad students in my program. I felt like I missed out on that for sure. So the isolation of it and spending a lot of time in my office on my computer, the days sometimes felt very long, but yeah, it was still a great experience, but don't recommend doing your master's during the COVID-19 pandemic. You are not the first student to say that. Mm -hmm. I don't think you'll be the last. I mean, even within this room, we both had to do grad school during the pandemic as well. And it was just brutal. Mm -hmm. And I think there should have been more of an outlet for us to talk and connect during Mm -hmm. that time. And I mean, you know, shoulda, woulda, coulda, but Mm -hmm. it's really too bad. I think we weren't able to connect more. 
more, mm -hmm. especially because we were all doing the same thing. And honestly, I don't think you're alone in grad school in general being lonely for a lot of people. Yeah. I think we hear horror stories all the time of people pre-pandemic and now sort of mid-post-pandemic, depending on where we are. They still have lonely grad school experiences. I think it's a more systemic issue in grad school. Yeah, so really finding that community, I think, is, is really important. And if I do more schooling, I'm going to be really intentional about that. Are you applying for PhDs? I'm waiting to find out right now. Hey, yeah. Exciting. Yeah. yeah, apparently. I talked to my POI yesterday and she was like, yeah, they're really behind right now. So I won't find out for another couple weeks, but well, we'll, we'll cross our fingers for you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. We are so excited to announce that Lillian has officially been accepted at U of T for a PhD in geography starting in September. And we wanted to say good luck, Lillian, with all of your future graduate studies. And maybe we could have you back on for an update at some point in the future. So Frodo and Sam had a team of fellow adventurers that stepped up to help them on their trek to Mordor, ranging from elves to dwarves to fellow hobbits to man. Gandalf was Frodo and Sam's guide and advisor. Who was your Gandalf in grad school? Without a doubt, Stephanie Rutherford. I just love her. She's so amazing. And I really think that a supervisor can make or break your grad school experience. And I've seen this like on Twitter recently, people talking about don't find a supervisor who maybe is like the best in their field. Find someone who is nice and respectful of their students and is a good mentor and all these things. And, you know, Stephanie is an amazing researcher in her own right. She has some incredible books and, and publications, but really my favorite thing about her was how supportive she was of me. She met with me all the time and she was so encouraging and taught me so much. So really having that supervisor who is your biggest fan, I think is really important. I think on that note, reaching out to students in that lab or working with that supervisor is so important before you start because I think a supervisor can put on kind of whatever face they want, but getting to know the students that had previously worked with them and knowing their experience is really a good way to know what you're kind of getting into. For any incoming grad students, if you're interested in grad school and listening to this podcast to learn more, that is a totally normal thing to do, to contact a potential supervisor and ask for contact information for current and past students. It's normal, lots of people do it, and then you'll get a chance to not only meet potentially fellow lab mates, but to learn a little bit more about the environment that you're committing to for at least two years, maybe upwards of four years for a PhD. Yeah, and also, like, there are a lot of great resources out there of, like, questions that you should be asking a potential supervisor. Things like, how do you give feedback? What is your expectation of grad students? Things like that, because, you know, someone who is right for me might not be right for you. It's a lot of matching personalities and matching feedback styles and all that kind of thing that I think is so important if you're going to be working with someone for a while. I totally agree. Yeah. If the listeners should remember one thing from this episode, what would that be? I think it's that if we want to protect the land in a sustainable way, we need to be bringing many voices along with us. I think also that we are not separate from our environments. We are very much a part of it. And so thinking about conservation as a way that we can move forward in sustainability is super important. And I also brought with me a quote from a researcher from a paper that has really stuck with me through my grad school. I read 
read this in first year and it's really guided my work. And it's from a paper by Meg Udellis and colleagues. If humans are only tourists in nature and not animals integral to our ecosystems, we will continue the tradition of locking up parcels of land away from where we live and continuing our unsustainable lifestyles adjacent to those areas. And I think that's really important to carry with us. Where can our listeners contact you if they're interested in connecting with you or if they want to learn more about your research or maybe about what you're going to be getting into in the future? Where can people reach you? Yeah, so they can email me liliandart at trentu.ca or I'm on Twitter as well at liliandart. Please connect with me on there. I'm always interested to hear what other people are doing and it's just great to hear, you know, the exciting research that's happening at Trent. As always, we'll include links to Lillian's socials down below and links to anything else that we talked about today. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks. Yay, that was so Thank you so much to Lillian for coming in and chatting with us. Thank you to Sadler House for hosting us and providing all of our awesome equipment. And thank you to you for listening as always. If you want to get in touch with Lillian or learn anything about the resources that we chatted about today in the episode, all of our links are going to be found in the show notes. You can also reach out to us through our fellowship Gmail, which is also in the show notes, as well as all of our social media contact. We are FOTR, Fellowship of the Research, podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. We hope you have an amazing week coming up. And as always, you shall pass. All right, I'm back with some more March Mammal Madness updates. Just one correction from last week. I did say that there were no upsets in the itty bitty comeback city, but I was incorrect. The grasshopper mouse was actually the one upset taking out the southern ninjue. The grasshopper mouse continued its upsets into the second round where it outlasted the sea otter when an orca came onto the scene and spooked the little fuzzy guy into to the kelp below. Otherwise, there were no upsets in Itty Bitty Comeback City other than the grasshopper mouse just killing it so far. There were no upsets for round two in Mighty Stripes. There was one upset in the Animal Engineers when the Paleocaster was suddenly transported into the Lungfish Den. The two fought valiantly, but ultimately the Paleocaster stood its ground and the Lungfish had to flee the scene. And the final upset was when the Pacific spiny lump sucker was able to gross out and outlast the Siamang. And since you've last heard me, there's also been the Sweet 16 battles. There were no upsets for Itty Bitty Comeback City or Mighty Stripes. However, Homo habilis managed to eat the Cathedral Termite, which isn't that surprising. And then finally, I thought there was going to be a huge fight between the Wolverine and the Greater Rhea, which is a huge bird, kind of like an ostrich. Except before the Wolverine could even close in on the Rhea, the bird collapsed 
collapsed from all of the junk that had built up in its gizzard. So the wolverine managed to come over and just eat the Rhea because it was already on the ground, super sick and unable to fight. So kind of a disappointing fight, but a good reminder that you shouldn't leave junk outside because there's lots of animals that might try to eat it. So always clean up after yourselves, especially when you're out in nature. 